Hey there, CNFers. This episode is affiliately sponsored by Liquid IV. That means I get paid if you buy stuff. If you don't, I don't. And I gotta say, this is a delicious way to rehydrate and fuel those endurance activities or hangovers. And if you just want to zhuzh up your water, no better way. It's some tasty stuff. Been a big fan of the lemon-lime... Uh, the white peach for the sugar-free was pretty dope. It's non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. Also, there's a sugar-free version I alluded to uh, with the white peach. Really good stuff. 20% off if you use the promo code CNF at checkout at liquidiv.com. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. This episode is also brought to you by the word morass, a noun, any confusing or troublesome situation, especially one from which it is difficult to free oneself. When the 3 a.m. voice wakes you up, it reminds you that the book you're writing is a morass of your own making, and you have only yourself to blame. Okay, CNFers. It's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Whoopee. It was bound to happen with book research and book writing being what it is. I'm having a hard time keeping up with the reading of the books for new guests. I mean, you've already seen it with some of the standalone episodes being uh, about research or author readings and such. Uh, the new uh, new interviews will be coming uh, a little bit less frequently. And given that the backlog is super overwhelming, and I doubt people go skimming through the backlog, because it might just feel like there's an expiration date on these things. And I try to conduct evergreen interviews. So if you do go back, you'll be like, oh, okay. It might be, there might be a few dated references, but by and large, a lot of the things will be applicable to you and entertaining, I think, to this day. Why not take the opportunity to create a, a now in paperback series, haha, where I bring up one of my favorite conversations from the depths of the show's inventory. You'll know it's a rerun when you see the now in paperback in the title. If I refresh a documentary filmmaker's interview, maybe I'll say now on Blu-ray. Point being, a new episode is roughly 20 hours of total labor, give or take, so this saves me several hours a week to just refresh a new one, drop a new intro. I don't think I'll be doing new parting shots. I'm just going to drop new intro just to let you know what's coming, and then that'll be it. New episodes will have the number ahead of it. So the next new one will be 386. With who? Who knows? When? I don't know. This was originally episode 100 but the wonderful Mary Carr, author of the memoirs The Liars Club, Cherry and Lit, as well as The Art of Memoir, amazing craft book, and the poetry collection Tropic of Squalor, which was the reason she was on the show the first uh, this time, only time to date. Oh, man, and uh, I was so nervous ahead of this interview. I, I, I got far more nervous back in the day, probably in the first... 150 to 200 ish episodes when it came to big names. I still do to an extent, uh, but it was real bad back then um, as the show was slowly gaining traction. So slow. That's all relative. I mean, I still complain about the slow traction. The show has far more traction today than it does than it did back in 2018 when the sh- 
episode aired. Anyway, if you head over to brandonamero.com, hey, hey, you can read show notes and sign up for uh, my Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, a curated list, how basic, of cool stuff. Um, there's usually an essay of some kind, uh, book recommendations, uh, stuff to make you happy. As you know, it goes up to 11. Literally, the list is 11 items long. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you still can't beat it. And I started something cool for the patreon.com slash cnfpod crew. Any tier. Uh, I started a, a thread. Uh, first one was uh, what you're working on, then about book writing being messy. And the latest one uh, going out soon is just going to be about the best writing advice you've ever received. And I'm stealing a term from Seth Godin here, but if the podcast audience is about collecting dots, uh, the Patreon crew is about connecting dots. And I'm really liking the discussions and support that's taking place over there. You know, there's you know about 25-ish uh, of you, and about a third are chiming in, and I hope more decide to do so as well. So I, I kind of I, I, I start the thread, and then I hope everyone just talks amongst each other. You know, I just come in to, as a moderator to just let you know that I'm there but i'm not really diving in it's mainly for the group to get together free ways to support the show of course are leaving reviews on apple podcasts or ratings on spotify all it does is validate the show for the wayward cnfer uh i read some one-star reviews of six weeks in saratoga so i'm feeling pretty crappy right now i could use a really i could use a boost so if you got if you got some time a nice review on apple Podcasts will uh make your burly vegan feel pretty damn good and one last thing, my requisite shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I'm a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. So if you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. Again, I don't get any money. They're not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards, like, T-shirts or uh, uh, discounts on on beer. So it's a... Uh, Trust me, when I when I say I don't get a whole lot, I don't get a whole lot. Give it a shot, because it's damn tasty. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna just roll right in to this conversation with uh Mary Carr from episode one hundred. So I hope you enjoy it. It's uh, it holds up. Riff. yesterday to you that um you know that I've, I've read tropical squalor you know cover to cover three times and oh so nice and it's one it's wonderful it's one of those books that just seems to get a bit richer every time you do it and it's nice to be sort of in the hands of someone who really knows what they're doing and it's just such a lovely piece of work and i want to thank you for it oh it's so kind of you it's just oh it's the nicest it's the nicest it's all you want to hear i mean it's all you want to hear so yeah. Thank you. I've been uh, I've been surprisingly lucky with it. Yeah, it's uh, and I you know luck of course doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. You know this thing is a grind and a craft, and it uh, the what you're able to distill with what you're writing, it just it's so lean and so like beautiful and powerful. And so, what does that process look like for you? Is you're looking to just squeeze the most out of every single word? Well, I think. Mostly, I think I, I, the way I try to describe it to my students who are, you know, obviously engaged in the in the page, um, 
I, I throw out a lot, but I also, I have a tendency to rewrite, like completely overhaul. Um, a friend of mine said, you know, it's like you buy a hatchet from Abraham Lincoln and, you know, a hundred years later, you have to change the head. And a hundred years after that, you have to change the handle, you know? And so I feel like that's most, every poem in there started out. I always make a joke that every poem I've ever written is, I am sad the end by Mary Carr, you know, like it's, it <laughs> usually comes out of grief or rage or joy or some strong feeling. And then you just try to be, the poems aren't for me, they're supposed to be for readers. So I just try to make an experience for a reader is what I'm shooting for. And at first, I've heard Neil Strauss say something like, the first draft is for me and the second draft is for the reader and the third draft is for the haters. And so, <laughs> that's such a great line. Isn't that cool? And uh, so good. Yeah, and he's doing you know reported nonfiction and so forth. But I wonder if on right. on some level, if that kind of hits home for you, that maybe your early drafts are are for you, but then there is a conscientious conscientious effort for the reader, and then you know just that kind of honing as you're rewriting things. You know, I always have, I almost always have a very specific reader in mind. Uh, it might be a very literary person, somebody I admire a lot, somebody I'm afraid is going to read it. Uh, I, I think I often go to like the scary, the scariest place I can go. I think, you know, there's a chance Don DeLillo could read this mm-hmm. poem. And then, you know, if it's terrible, I'll have to, you know, lie down on the train track. But, um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's more like the the sixty the drafts three to draft fifty are for the haters i I really do literally do like fifty drafts of a poem, like the things that are sonnets started out being you know two pages single space, so uh i I just ha- try to hack away stuff that's really boring or really obvious or the language really or or. I, everybody has a sin they commit as a writer. I always want to think I'm clever, which I'm, you know, I'm not particular. I mean, there are plenty of much cleverer people than I am. But uh, so I often find myself cutting out things where I'm trying to be glib or steer away from what was difficult. Mm-hmm. And is that usually a, a trusted reader tells you that or a or is it something that you stumble upon? You're like, oh, yeah, you know, Mary, you're trying to be, you know, too clever in this instance. Work harder. Right, right. It, when I was about 12, I, 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 you know, all the kids in the sixth grade picked on me because I was reading T.S. Eliot. And I started saying, indeed, because <laughs> I was an asshole. <laughs> because let me say, I started saying, indeed, because I was a horrible person. Can I say asshole on this show? Oh, yeah. You can okay. say anything you want. <laughs> okay. So I thought I I sounded like a dick. And <laughs> and but that was like one of the those those poets, those European you know, European influenced American poets who descended kind of from the French fancy French symbolist poets who ate opium and drank absinthe and, you know, boffed hookers by the boatload. And, you know, they were smarter than everybody else. And, and they kind of teased the bourgeois reader with difficulty. 
Mm. And I think that's not the nature of my ability. Whatever I bring to the page is usually much more about heart or about connecting with people. So while that's a perfectly fine way to write and that's a perfectly, that tradition has influenced poetry in English the past 170 years or 50, 60 years, I guess. To your point, it's like, what what was that process like for you? You, know, you write about, you've always you know, written about the nature of talent, finding voice. And I wonder what was that process like going from someone who felt like they had to say indeed to someone who was comfortable writing horse dookie? <laughs> horse, horse dookie. You know, an even better one is horse hockey, but a lot of Yankees don't know what it means. But horse <laughs> hockey, isn't that a good one? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think when I got sober, which I did before my second book of poems, I, I, I literally typed up my second book of poems in a mental institution. I was in the hallway with a typewriter for certain hours a day that would let me type. And I think I I, I was living in, in Boston and around Cambridge where everybody was such a smarty pants. And I think I had surrendered. I had surrendered to the idea that while I was a you know little pit bull and I would I would try very hard and I would read everything. I was not. Uh, I didn't go to the Sorbonne. I didn't speak seven languages. And and uh, I don't know. I I just I I think as we get older. I don't know. You sound young, but as we get older, we become in my sixties. You com- become more and more yourself. Right. Kind of almost, you know, it can be a really bad thing. I think for me, in terms of my writing, it's been, I feel freer uh, to say what I want. And how long would you say it took you to come to that and to be comfortable being who you were on the page versus trying to imitate somebody else that was an early influence? I would say... I really started writing when I was a kid. I mean, like five. And but I started writing a lot kind of on a schedule when I was about 19 or 20. So maybe 35. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was. So what is that? 15 years, yeah. I think. And and it's just that, you know, the Carnegie. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? You know, practice, practice, practice. I just wrote a lot. And I don't think everybody should go to an MFA program or sit in a workshop, but I was somebody who really profited. I had a great teacher, a guy named Etheridge Knight. I think I write about him in Lit, who was this African-American, rusty-handed ex-con who Gwendolyn Brooks had discovered. And I think in prison in Michigan at the time, though, he was from Mississippi. And he moved across, say, the Princeton campus like a man from Mississippi and not uh, like somebody impersonating an intellectual. He was an autodidact and he was self-educated and he was also a brilliant poet. And I remember him tapping my, taking a pencil and tapping my shoulder with it, like, your heart, Mary Carr, your heart, Mm. you know, you don't, you're not going to be a philosopher, and I was thinking, of course I'll be a philosopher. I had these very grand ideas with my little redneck, squirrel-murdering self. <laughs> and uh, and so, I, you know, And I, but then I also had teachers 
who were, you know, Robert Haas or Louise Glick or Heather McHugh, who, you know, were part of the academy, who were, went to the schools with the fancy names. But actually, Louise was a dropout. Tobias Wolf was a dropout. I, I think I, I naturally migrated towards people who uh, were not coming out of the academy even though I met them in a sort of in the in graduate school sort of in the academy and um but nobody when I was in graduate school I wasn't the one that everybody said oh she's really gonna do something I mm. I I think I was uh I was lauded or rewarded for for being a little bit of a workhorse for reading more books than other people did because I was so behind when I got there I was so miserably educated uh, mainly from having dropped out of school I mean you know through no fault of my my teachers from being just such a feckless you know itinerant and uh, people it's not that I, I got honors I think every semester I was there but it was not really for the writing it was much more for being you know doing more essays than everybody did and really trying to learn something about history because I really didn't know anything written before Elvis, you know? Right. That's a, I wonder where you got that, that strength of and conviction of patience uh, through that 15 year sort of apprenticeship that you, that you underwent through having to read, read more than everyone else to catch up and to write more than everyone else to catch up. You know, where, where did that, that doggedness come from? Again, I, I had some amazing teachers, but I also didn't really have anything to go back to, did I? I mean, I was going to, what was I going to do? I was going to go to work at the brewery. I was going to, I don't know, maybe I could have gotten an education degree and taught high school English or something like that. I mean, in the best case scenario, but, you know, most of the pathways I took were very unconventional. So uh, I think there was that doggedness. I think I worked very closely with Robert Haas when uh, I was in grad school, and he read Pound and Elliot and Stevens with me and was kind of an expert on on all of them. And so uh, I remember when I was reading Pound, I went to the library and tried to look up every word in the cantos, you know, that's used, is written in like, you know, 14 different languages, including ancient Greek and Sanskrit. And I thought I was going to look up every word I didn't know and understand uh, uh, the cantos. And uh, and I called him at home and I was crying from a phone booth and because uh, I couldn't afford a phone. And I said, you know, Bob, I can't read the cantos. And he's like, well, then don't read them. And he he urged me to think about the sound of the poems. You know, he said, why don't you try to learn how to pronounce French and Italian instead of learning all these different languages, just in the short term, you can learn how to pronounce stuff in about a month. You know, why don't you, why don't you just do that? So suddenly I began to, he, he gave me things I could do that made me less afraid of kind of the, monolithic task of trying to educate myself but it was also I guess when I even when I was a little kid writers were kind of the way you know guys in Texas feel about the Dallas Cowboys you know yeah. <laughs> I, I felt about I felt about you know uh 
some great athlete. I Writers were just so, they were like unicorns or griffins or centaurs or something. They were just so glamorous and that especially poets who could do something in such a small, with such economy, you know, just a small page, a handful of words, they could really knock the bejesus out of you. And, and uh, so it was, it was actual, it was two things. I think it was a combination of loneliness and devotion. They, they spoke to me. They, they made me less lonely, both on the page and then I met them, and they're peculiar, and they were kind of peculiar in ways that I was peculiar. They were solitary. They were smart and fun to talk to, but they didn't brook a lot of nonsense. It, it seems it must have been kind of empowering to see that everyone kind of ran their own race, but ended up kind of in a similar similar place. Like it didn't have to be a, a, a singularly charted map. Like you found, you found all these kind of quirky roads that everyone took to the same place. And then you realize you're sort of among your own people. And they were, you know, they were, it's not like anybody said, Oh, you're going to be a great poet. It wasn't like, that. I wasn't encouraged like that, but just to be part of the conversation, just to be in a room where people were talking about poetry uh, not just the great writers like Louise Gluck or Robert Haas or Etheridge Knight, but, um, you know, just my fellow students, uh, you know, who were, you know, Mark Doty was in grad school with me. I and mean, just meeting young poets and young authors. I felt so lucky. You know, I grew up in this town where you couldn't buy a book. And here were these people who, like me, would, you know, forego buying groceries to load up a paper sack at a used bookstore. It just seemed marvelous. Yeah, and more nourishing in so a that, sense. Yeah, and that so that's where the patience came from. It was, what else was I going to do? Was I going to be suddenly, like, get a job as a secretary somewhere? I mean, I'm not confident. I would be worse at that than I was at this. <laughs> it, uh, in, in one of your... Uh, recent poems, uh, you know, read these. You had mentioned you know, his loneliness was an invisible crown, and then there was a tweet you sent out not too long ago that you know I write for the same reason I read to find a better way of being alone. And I, I loved how you phrased that, and that it's not eschewing loneliness at all, but having having these words and a capacity for language and reading the stuff, it allows you to you know to be solitary and, and like you said, a better way to be alone. So like, how did how did you arrive at at that? comfort that this was uh a, like you said a better way to be alone well even when I was a little girl I think and I lived in this household where there were bullet holes in the wall and I mean plenty of people grew up worse than I did but the older I get the worse my childhood seems to me I think it didn't seem as bad to me when I was closer to it and now when I just think about any of the things that happened to me that you know could never have happened to my son I remember asking once were you afraid of my mother because she had threatened to slap him? And he said, oh, you would never allow that to happen. Hmm. And um, even when I, so even when I was a kid and I was depressed and really to the point of suicide when I was under 10 and uh, insecure and lonely, reading was socially sanctioned disassociation. I could disappeared down the valley of a book and you know Eeyore when Winnie the Pooh and Piglet were my friends it was it's really kind of pitiful <laughs> when you think about it but um 
but it imbued the process. It became a, a place of comfort to me and, and has never stopped being that, it, you know, has never stopped being a marvel to me. Uh, words on a page. Uh, you titled the first part of, of lit escaping from the Tropic of squalor and the title of the new collection of course is the Tropic of squalor. And, I wanted to know maybe what made you want to return to that title in that place? Well, I, um, a lack of imagination, I guess. I, um, I, uh, it, it is a great title just as tight as titles go. Yeah. And I was still haunted by the place, by the, by the physical place, you know, those poems about Texas and about my father and, and I, I I wanted it to be a book like Dante, you know, starts in in the inferno and then works his way to paradise. And I I feel like I started in this the darkness of this swampy hellhole with these in the around surrounded by these flaming towers. And and New York City it could be its own hell certainly, but uh, for me it's my paradiso. It's uh, it is amazing. I mean, last night I gave this reading, and it was like it was like standing room only at a at a bookstore. It was, I was sh- it was shocking. Hmm. And at at the end, and there was a guy right on the front row who was clearly, pretty clearly homeless, and you know didn't have teeth, as it turns out, which no one else could see but me and the people right next to him. But I asked for questions, and he said you know, don't you have any happy poems? And I said, um, yeah, I, but not very many. And he said, why not? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I, I feel, uh, I guess I'm a sad person, uh, you know, but, you know, happiness writes white or something. But, hmm. but he was just a guy who'd wandered in to get off the street and have a place to sit down. And we were having a conversation about the nature of art and yeah. what it's for. And, and, uh, you know, if I lived in Peoria or, you know, I wouldn't, I might not have that kind of conversation as I, as I could have, um, on Broadway and 82nd street last night. So. Yeah. And what's the process like of, choosing which poems make the cut for something like this and then tracking it like uh like an album like what what is that like for you in terms of the order that's exactly how i think of it i i have a lot of friends who are musicians even when i was a kid you know i was one of those girls who dated the guitar player you know um so i often think of like a fast song and a slow song uh for the for the first half of the book before you get to the less than holy bible part i thought about starting i i don't know i always i always the poem ends with my friend dean young who's a great poet and we had just and he was dying he actually got a heart transplant and didn't die but he he was his mouth was blue because he didn't have enough oxygen and his heart was failing and uh we come across this dying squirrel and and uh he bent like a waiter to the squirrel and said with no irony at all you know 
I honor your struggle, little brother, which is such a sweet, <laughs> it was such a crazy, sweet thing to say. And, and so I thought as an opening, I wanted everything else in the book to be about honoring, you know, my struggle, certainly, but everybody's. But, but eventually I lay everything out. What it looks like is I lay it out around my apartment. Like I think, well, this poem probably goes at the end. Like, mm. that's what I think. And then the less than holy Bible I had been working on for a while, all these poems that I wanted to be like a journey from specifically from the inferno to paradise and from the void from Genesis into some kind of resurrection or something. So I thought, well, okay, well then these poems that are more exalted or uh, about it, a more obvious redemption have to come, have to come later. And so then how do you build up to the, you know, I tried to make some kind of arc or narrative. Yeah. I love, I love picturing you moving these poems around physically to, to get us to really see it visually and have your hands on it and to you know, see how that map plays out and see if it makes any sense. You know, I, I just had a, I do that with my thesis students at Syracuse University where I teach today. When I work with, a, you know, an MFA student at the end of the semester, when they're about to graduate, they come to my apartment in New York uh, and we lay out, one of them will come and we'll just, so one of them was just here and we were laying out his palms all around my apartment and he was standing in the middle and he was moving one way and I was moving another and we were sort of shuffling everything around and he stood in the middle and held his hands up. I wish you could see Jacob Meyer. He's so such a beautiful kid. And he said, I feel like I'm in the middle of a whirlpool. <laughs> it's just so, so funny. So sweet. It's, it's great that you brought up, brought up your friend Dean too. He, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about, especially with, you know, how all the poems kind of link together. Cause you, you started with, you know, the organ donors driver's license has a black check. And then later there's dear Oklahoma team smashed on reservation road. And I, I wanted to get a sense of like your relationship to Dean and maybe what happened to him, but he kind of alluded to that already. But, uh, so like who, like who is Dean and like, uh, you know, what's your relationship with him? Well, there there are two poets right now. Well, there are three really that I that I feel kind of the greatest admiration for. That are who are, I mean, I, there are a million. Actually, there are probably four, but but certainly in the top two, it kind of ping pongs back between uh, Terrence Hayes and Dean Young. Mm -hmm. So he's a guy I didn't actually I've known his work for a long time, but it, he published a book called Skid maybe uh, fifteen years ago. 13 years ago and it just knocked my socks off it just came at me at a time uh that really wowed me and um and I was like I have to meet this guy so we were we wound up teaching in a summer program at Sarah Lawrence and became kind of best friends just as he was dying uh, he began to die I mean he was dying he before they found a donor heart, he was, you know, he was on the list and he might have died before that happened. And so he lives in Austin, teaches at University of Texas. And I went down there um, shortly after, well, before the surgery when I was afraid he was going to die and then after. So 
he's just also somebody like anybody who's really looked into the abyss. The poems really changed uh, from from facing his own mortality. I saw him as a he's a dark, you know, he's a dark. He's no Richard Simmons, you know. He's a dark bastard. <laughs> um, that's who Dean is. So, well, and what a, a couple of the other poems that I wanted to uh, talk to you about that I thought were just so so, so like prescient and moving were. Um, the Carnegie Hall rush seats and you know, the the cello has always kind of been something that kind of just bellows and is always like cut into my core, if you will. And uh, I love the the way you put it is that it just kind of it it aches. And uh, and I wanted to ask you what has been your experience, maybe you know, listening listening to music like that and why specifically maybe does the, the cello speak to you so much so that you know you wrote a poem about it? Well that's so interesting. I um well I used to date this kind of famous concert pianist a pian- uh named Awadajan Pratt. Uh we're good friends now. It was long, long ago. Uh, but I, so a couple of times I, you know, I would go with him on the road and I would go to where he was, he was playing and, and we, I used to joke because he was very kind of handsome guy. I used to joke that every, at every orchestra, there was some bow-legged cello player, you know, looking at me who had some woman playing the cello who hated me. And, um, I would show up at rehearsal and, and I, we would joke about the bow-legged cello player, but like you. I'm one of those people, every time I hear the cello, it's like the hair, you know, the, on the back of my neck crawls up my scalp. And then Pratt actually put out a record uh, with a famous cellist and that I listened to kind of over and over. And, uh, and I was thinking, what is it about that noise? What is it about? Uh, it's so mournful, uh, but there's, but there's something so it makes you feel so alive. And, and so, yeah, I, I guess I thought it was sexual and I thought it was, you know, also about balancing on the edge of a pit, you know, about being, you know, right at the edge of, of the darkness, right at the, you know, a tree's had its heart hacked out uh, to make the instrument. I don't know. I guess all those associations, but that poem was about four times longer hmm. uh, than, than it is now. And it became so much better when I just cut all the, all the blubber off it. But thank you for saying that. I got so much mail. It ran in the New Yorker, actually. And I, I got so much mail about it. It was so nice. Yeah. Well, it's like you say, cutting the blubber off it. I mean, almost everything can benefit from being like, 10, 20, 30% shorter than it is, if not shorter than that. It's just the, it's just the nature of word, word economy that things should be the shortest possible piece of work that they can be, whether that's an 80,000 word memoir manuscript or a 150 word poem. Right. Well, you said, are you a poet or a memoir person? I can't tell. I'm, I'm more of a narrative journalist and, and personal essay and memoir guy myself. I'm, historically been kind of great i'm sorry yep no go ahead oh i was just gonna say historically i've been sort of poem averse but i've been trying to 
opened my mind to it by reading really, really good poets like yourself. And that's like been opening the door a crack to some to, to other things that I haven't been quite as familiar for. Cause I've just kind of closed my mind to it. So I'm just trying to, you know, be a little more diverse in my reading across all things. Cause what? there, there's a true story component to, to poetry that I, that I like and a word economy that appeals to me. Right. Well, if you, if you try somebody just between you and me, if you try somebody like Dean Young, he's, he's kind of an experimental poet as is Terrence Hayes. My other sort of favorite American poet right now, H-A-Y-E-S. Um, they're both experimental, which means the poems aren't all, if you, that you're not going to like all the poems and you're not crazy. The poems vary to me wildly and they have a lower batting average than somebody who's working in a more traditional way. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So, so I think I... So I think a lot of people, when they read poetry, if they're dealing with a, a, a kind of bolder person than I am, uh, the poems that are great are better than heroin. <laughs> uh, but you, ha- you just have to trust yourself when you hit one that you don't like to say, you know, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. This is just it's working in a way that I can't uh, I can't enter it. I don't know. I yeah. I, I, so, um, but that so that's interesting. But I also think that nonfiction essays right now are really enjoying a renaissance. Last night, a lot of people were talking about them. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of getting back to the the cello. Ha, have you read uh, Jose Saramago's Death with Interruptions? Absolutely. That novel, like like uh, I just love. It's one of my favorite books of the last fifteen years, well, ten years, I guess. And uh, he wrote the way he writes about the cello and that like kind of echo, like when I read yours, I'm like, oh, that kind of echoed back to the way he handled the, the cello piece or the cello aspect of that book. And I was, I was that's great that you've read it. So you kind of have a touchstone there. Uh, yeah, he's a he's just such a genius, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, man. That harkened back to that for me. And uh, what, what I also like in Tropical Squalor was the like button. And that seemed kind of dystopic, and especially in our age of uh, social media and how it can kind of – how our validation comes comes so much from people liking a tweet or liking a post on Facebook or something. Like, Where did that poem come from and surface from for you? Well, I, I, um, I tell – I tell people all the time I can sort of gauge my spiritual state by how much I want to kill my fellow New Yorkers. And so I, I am, so I do, I actually do a spiritual exercise that I kind of made up that a Buddhist friend of mine says a Tibetan Buddhist princess is an actual meditation practice, which is when I am very irritated uh, and I'm walking through the city, I'm in a big crowd I start praying for each face, Mm. you know, God bless, you know, the guy in the plaid shirt, God bless the woman screaming, you know, in a pile of excrement, God bless the, you know, whatever. And instantly people kind of look different to me. What did that, I was apropos of something. Remind me your question again. Oh, just uh, fell out of my head. Oh yeah. It just, it dealt with how, um, in the, in this age, like so much of our validation is drawn from that little dopamine. Oh, right. Get. Yeah. From the like. Right. So, 
so what what started happening was that people who used to look horrible to me began to look beautiful to me. They they I mean just try this honestly even if you don't believe in God just say bless this person. Mm-hmm. When you're in like in a crowd and you're being irritated, you're in line for, you know, at the airport or whatever. And people actually start to look different. They become more specific and they become less whatever category you put them in. And I thought based on the social media thing that wouldn't it be great if we evolved that button on our heads and we stopped liking the Kardashians and started liking, you know, the, the, the unfortunate, the suffering enough to the poor enough to kind of maybe, you know, take care of them a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, yeah, the, the, the reference to like the, 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 the glass on the, on her ass. I was like, Oh yeah, there's that. But then, (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, she's such an irritant to me because I've never clicked on a single thing having to do with any of them. And I see their faces every day, probably five times. Oh, man. It's it's just, like the, the algorithms are still somehow <laughs> pointing her to you. <laughs> yeah. What kind of filter do I have to put on my phone to stop having having such people fly at me, you know? Oh, man. I wish I knew, Mary, because they're... they're certain things that just keep popping up. Like there are other people that I want to see pop up in my various feeds. I'm like, what? where are they? Did they disappear? But no, I keep getting stuff about the Avengers. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know the Avengers. It's so funny. It's very funny. And, uh, in, in your writing process, like where do you feel most engaged and most alive? Uh, in, in terms of writing, yeah, writing or rewriting or the editing phase, you know, what part sort of like excites you the most? Def- definitely editing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely a better rewrite. I'm not much of a writer, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty good rewriter. I do things. I do tend to, I can make things better. I, I'm able to make things better if I can get through the horribleness of the, of the first draft. Um, I've, I've got a, I've got a chance, I think. So, uh, yeah. And, and for me, it's getting everything I really want to say has barnacles on it. I think I, I try to, even after all this time, I try to hide and I, I don't do it on purpose. I want to tell the truth, but I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself in some way. So I still bob and weave and hide and dodge and faint and, and, uh, and, and only with time can I kind of actually unearth or, you know, find the angel in the stone as, as Michelangelo would have said. Mm. And you, you came to a, you know, a high degree of visibility with your, with your work, you know, around the age of 40 or so. And right. And so what advice might you might you give someone who might be mid-career, has a little bit of talent or a lot of talent, but things just haven't clicked yet? Um, what would I say to somebody in that situation? I mean, I really I I really profited from a writing group, um, from a work you know, from workshops and to not be afraid to take edits. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of my, a lot of young writers in my classes 
argue with me. I will edit something for them and they'll argue with me. And I understand that they have an idea about it, but, but I think the younger and more uncertain the writer, the more fiercely they defend an original idea. And one of my students said, well, how many edits do you take? What kind of, how are you at taking edits? I said, probably, I don't know. I probably take 98% of the suggested edits. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the ones, even the ones I rankle against from an editor, or even somebody at a magazine, or even somebody, some that I rankle against. So I, I would say to not be afraid to rewrite. It's it's not like painting where you people literally have an idea that you can break the palm or or break the piece of writing if you tear it. To, but you can always go back to an earlier draft, and you can paint past something and ruin it forever. Mm. But a writer can all, you know, you can tear it apart and try to do it another way and always go back to an earlier draft if you're not happy. But I've just found in the tearing apart, I often see uh, truths that uh, were evading me with some earlier version. Yeah, the 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 right answer, if someone's willing to give you such great edits is, is thank you. It's not to push back against it. <laughs> Well, I but you know, uh, I was the same way. Yeah. I was the same way. Uh and and I asked I recently asked Delillo and he said, "Oh, I take he said I take most edits. Yeah, I take most edits." We're kind of coming up against our our time. Um I was wondering if uh maybe you'd feel com- if if you'd like uh if you're willing, uh, is there a particular poem out of your collection you you wouldn't mind reading? That I'll read the Carnegie Hall poem, if that's the one you want, or the Voice of God poem. I think those are two kind of shortish poems. Sure, that'd be um, that'd be wonderful. Okay, I'm trying to think which of those. I'll do the Carnegie Hall rush seat. Uh, no, I'll do the Voice of God because because I'm a prayer. I pray, and even before I believed in God, I started praying. Just like I said before, just in that blind way, almost just like God help me, mm. almost like the, almost like cursing at the sky. And I actually, I pray for people who are sick, and you know, I don't know if it changes things, but it changes me, and sometimes I change things. So, but I actually ask God for advice. I say like, what should I do about? And even though I never get any lottery numbers or anything good, I I do sometimes get a leaning. And uh, people have asked me what the voice of God sounds like to me as a prayer. And so this poem has kind of been answer to that. The voice of God. 90% of what's wrong with you could be cured with a hot bath, says God through the manhole covers. But you want magic to win the lottery you never bought a ticket for. Tenderly the monks chant, embrace the suffering. The voice never panders, offers no five-year plan, no long-term solution, no edicts from a cloudy white beard hooked over the ears. It is small and fond and local. Don't look for your initials in the geese honking overhead or to see through the glass even darkly. It says the most obvious shit like, put down that gun, you need a sandwich. That's great.
but I'm also happy to read the Carnegie Hall if you prefer that and you pick which one you like. I'd I'd love uh, yeah if you could read the Carnegie Hall one too that'd be wonderful. I pro- I would I would use both. Okay, since that's the one you brought up, um, Carnegie Hall rush seats. Yeah, I I again my friend Alwood Dodge and Pratt. I used to follow around uh, to rehearsals and always when I heard a cello, I just felt like. I felt like I was floating on hashish smoke or something. So this poem is called Carnegie Hall Rush Seats. Whatever else the orchestra says, the cello insists you're dying. It speaks from the core of the tree's hacked out heart, shaped and smoothed like a woman. Be glad you are not hardwood yourself and can hear it. Every day the cello is taken into someone's arms, taken between spread legs and lured into its shivering. The arm saws and saws and all the sacred cries of saints and demons issue from the carved cleft holes. Like all of us, it aches, sending up moans from the pit we balance on the edge of. Wow, that's one. There you go. That's that's so that's so great the that you that you did that, Mary. I, I really appreciate you uh, doing that. I could speak to you for another three hours, but I know we're up against our time. So, um, but I feel the same way. Well, thank you so much for making time for for uh, uh, a harmless book of poems. Yeah, well, I think it's. I got, appreciate it. Of course, and uh, and uh, you know, where can uh, where can people um, get more familiar with your work online if they, if for some reason they haven't haven't heard of you and your work and want to plug into what you're doing? Yes. Uh, well, let's see. On Facebook, I think it's Mary Carlit. I think that's right. And Twitter, Mary Car K A R R Lit L I T. Uh, there is a website, MaryCar dot com, that I'm in the that has those feeds on them, but I'm in the process of updating it. So it's a little dated. Well, fantastic. Well, Mary, thank, thank you so much again. Uh, thank you so much for your work and, um, well, hopefully we'll be able to keep in touch down the line and thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you, dear. You have a good weekend. You as well. Take care. <laughs>